Welcome to Expound, our weekly worship and verse-by-verse study of the Bible. Our goal is to expand your knowledge of the truth of God as we explore the Word of God in a way that is interactive, enjoyable, and congregational. Makes me feel like dancing. <laughs> what music, huh? Um, good to be here tonight. I uh, I had a little trepidation about this uh, particular presentation tonight, as you'll see later. Um, there are some subjects that are just difficult to talk about, and we're going to enter into some of that tonight. Because there are elements about the story of Sodom and the destruction of Sodom and the reasons for the destruction of Sodom that uh, are a little bit uh, delicate to talk about uh, in a mixed audience setting. So um, we're going to try to do our best tonight. But the reason we're going to, going to do what we're going to do tonight is because I want to show you cleanly and clearly that the Bible is... An historical text that describes real geography, real cultures, real people in such an authentic way that one can take an archaeological spade, dig into the ground, and actually find direct links and confirmation of archaeology to the biblical text. It is possible to do that. What I want to show you tonight is how tightly these links are together. You'll be also one of the first groups of people to see some of these connections coming together because some of, this, some of the things I'm going to show you tonight are actually coming out of our excavation from this season, which just closed a few weeks ago. So there are going to be some things in the presentation tonight that are not even in the book. Now, what I will say is, you should buy the book. (laughs) Because what I'm not going to cover tonight is why we think Sodom is northeast of the Dead Sea, while most scholars either thought it never existed at all, or it was at the south end of the Dead Sea. That's in the book. Now, some of you have heard my presentations on this two, three, four times, and so you understand all of that. But you still need to buy the book. Because in the book, for the very first time, we have featured some of the scientific analysis, actually done at New Mexico Tech, of some of the high heat materials or high heat evidence that we find in and around the site of Sodom. And we're not talking about 
cool temperatures like a couple thousand degrees. We're talking about several thousands of degrees Kelvin, 12, 15,000 degrees Fahrenheit minimum. Temperatures that cannot be produced anywhere on the face of the earth, period, geologically. Volcanic magma doesn't even come close to this. These are temperatures that can only be reached by cosmic impact events. And, of course, the Bible specifically says that God took out Sodom and the cities of uh, of the plain with fire and goprit, whatever that is. We think it's lightning. Fire and lightning or electromagnetic discharge out of the sky, out of the heavens. So um, we're not talking about anything but something that came from up, impacted down, and took out an entire civilization in the blink of an eye. Now, um, what I want to show you tonight... Oh, by the way, um, this little picture is important. It's important to Trinity Southwest University and our College of Archaeology because the gentleman, that's my wife, standing next to me. I'm the handsome one. And um, Adib Abu Shemais on, on the right is Jordan's premier archaeologist. He's the top Jordanian archaeologist. He's absolutely amazing. Uh, he's our front line of ceramic reading. He reads all of our pottery. Uh, on our first uh, pottery read, we have three of them, a, a triple blind process to, to make sure we get the right analysis. And... Um, Here he is holding his brand new diploma, Doctor of Philosophy and Archaeology from Trinity Southwest University. So, very exciting and uh, very open to ideas about the Bible. He is a Muslim and... um, but uh, one of our one of our dear dear friends in Jordan. Now, coming up behind him is his protege. This is Jihad Harun, who is right now in the absence of a director general at the Department of Antiquities, actually running the department, and um, he has been involved with our dig for well, really pretty much since the beginning. And Jihad, who is really spectacular uh, archaeologist. Uh, is now enrolled in, in Trinity Southwest University in a combination master's doctoral program. So um, we're, we're so excited about being able not only to be involved in Jordan, but to give something to Jordan, to bring something to the archaeologists of Jordan, and that is a positive experience regarding archaeology and the Bible. And we're, we're very, very proud of this. So I want, wanted to just share that with you briefly. Now, um, let me show you where... Tal El Hammam is, if you're not familiar with, with where we are. Uh, this is the Dead Sea, of course, and here's Jericho. Jericho is just northeast of the Dead Sea, about 14 kilometers northeast of the Dead Sea. And on the other side are two major sites, each surrounded by multiple smaller cities. This is the first one. This is a, a place called Tal Nimri. Now, Tal T-A-L-L or T-E-L-L or in Israel, in Hebrew, T-E-L, Tel, just simply means a mound of ruins. It's the mound created by the existence of building and destruction and abandonment and again building and destruction of cities, one on top of the other, over hundreds, even thousands of years. So in this area, we have a city-state, and we believe it's a city-state, a large central city, with multiple smaller cities and towns around it. Just to the south of that, we have another one, anchored by Tal El Hammam, which is our excavation site, which is, in fact, the largest Bronze Age city, the largest and most enduring Bronze Age city in the entire southern Levant. By southern Levant, I mean in all of Israel and Jordan. There's no bigger city. It is 10 times bigger than Jerusalem, 14 times bigger than Jericho in the same periods. That's how large it is. So uh, you know how prominent, for example, Jerusalem is in the story of Abraham. That's where Melchizedek is king. Melchizedek's city is 10 times smaller than King Bera, King Bera's city of Sodom. 
Okay, so just get the, get the balance there on how big and important this is. So this is where we are, northeast of the Dead Sea. And if you read the book, you'll know in gory detail why we put it northeast of the Dead Sea. By the way, let me just tell you why we put it northeast of the Dead Sea. Because that's where it is. <laughs> End of discussion. Okay. Here's Tal Hammam. This is the upper tell. You really can't discern the lower tell from this, from this vantage point because the lower tell, the lower city, is so big that it just looks like a big plain in and of itself. So here we have the upper city sitting on top of the lower city. The upper city is 100 feet higher than the lower city. The lower city is 100 feet higher than the surrounding terrain. So it's an absolutely huge place that takes up a good square kilometer. Huge footprint. Uh, inside the city wall, inside the fortification, something like 62 acres. That doesn't sound big, big by modern standards, but by Bronze Age standards, by the standards of life in the time of Abraham, it is huge. In fact, it's in the top of the top. Okay. Now, here is a... An artist, not just any artist, this is Dr. Lane Rittmeyer's uh, reconstruction drawing of the city of Sodom. This is an early one. This is just a general proposal. What's interesting about it, if you'll notice where the approach road is and where the gate is located, do you see it? Lock onto that with your eyes because this drawing was done two years prior to the discovery of the gate. And Lane just speculated about where the gate was because as he shrugs his shoulders and says, well, hey, I've only been doing this for 30 years, 40 years, and um, it's all about symmetry. It's all about the water. It's all about, and I'm just going, okay, Lane, okay. But ultimately, when we actually discovered the gate, not this year, but the year before, last year, in 2011 season, 2012 season, Guess where it turned out to be? <clears throat> Thank you, Lane. He didn't have to redraw the reconstruction drawing. It's exact. The gate is actually where he drew it. And uh, so we were eating lunch on it for five, six years and didn't even know it was under our feet. Now, um, this is the fortification footprint. This big, wide thing, this kind of brownish thing you see, this uh, surrounds the site. This is the... This is the rampart, the defensive rampart that surrounds the city. It's topped by a city wall. That's what you see in red. It's topped by a fortification wall. The fortifications are anywhere from 100 to 150 feet thick. The city was impregnable. We have no evidence in eight years of excavating, we have no evidence whatsoever that any army ever conquered this city. Now the Bible does say in the 14th chapter of Genesis that Keterleomer attacked uh, or laid siege to the city, but it doesn't say he destroyed it or did anything to it. I think King Bera, the king of Sodom, was so rich he just paid him off and he went on his way. So... The city always remained intact until it was, of course, destroyed in Genesis chapter 19. But we did a remarkable excavation this year at the base of the rampart, the protection uh, rampart of the upper tell. And you see the upper tell, which makes up that uh, little elongated, let's just isolate it. Here's the upper tell, and we excavated in this location. Now, my staff was and my wife too, my staff and my wife, who's also on my staff. Uh, this is why you get to be the director, because your staff can complain left and right, and you just kind of say, yeah, I understand, and you just go do what you want to anyway. <laughs> Which is what I did. And, you know, I was thanking God that this turned out like it did, because, boy, they would be upset. Because I put, we put a lot of time, we did a lot of people, a lot of time, and a lot of energy on this little place this season. And if nothing would have popped up, I'd have come away with a lot of egg on my face. So um, thankfully, it turned out pretty good. Now, this is what it looks like when you start. And some of you, um, in fact, many, many of you, I hope maybe 20, 30, 50, 100 of you will come excavate with us next season. Hmm? 
please go to our website, digsodom.com. Look at the volunteer, being a volunteer. Come excavate with us. It's not going to cost you very much. In fact, the new, we have a new hotel headquarters and the cost of it for the entire season, meals, lodging, everything, field trips to Petra, places like that, it's going to cost you around $500 a week. It's not bad. Not bad. So uh, come on. Join us. Now, this is, what it's, this is what it looks like when you start. Uh, look, at we just dug maybe uh, about this deep, maybe 18 inches or so. And by the end of the season, look like this. Massive walls. I said, well, how big are those stones? Well, there I am standing up in the corner. This is hundreds of cubic meters of dirt. <laughs> I mean, literally, and stones. It was really tough going, but look, look what we have. We have walls upon walls and massive walls and massive stones, all part of huge construction dating to the, and much of it dating to the time of Abraham. Here I am sitting on a face of a wall, uh, a retain, just a retaining wall, which according to our architect, Dr. Lane Rittmeyer, is going to lead us up the hill to the upper city gate. Okay, I, I do believe him, since he's always right. Um, we'll find the upper city gate at some point. That's going to be very exciting. And uh, we'll be concentrating on that. Now, uh, I want to share with you um, some some of the fortification system. Why is it important? By the way, this was number one on my list. It was number one. When we first decided that this could very well be the city of Sodom, number one thing I wanted to find was this gate. Genesis 19.1 says, Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom. That's what I want. That was number one. Because you want to find something that's specifically mentioned in the Bible. So, wow, that's the gate I want. Couldn't find it. We finally did find it. And uh, it was very, very exciting. But the, the fact of a gate means the city is fortified. What do you have a gate for if there's not a wall going around the city to go through? So it's fortified. Here's Danette and I uh, standing on top of the fortification of the upper tail of the upper city. Now, there's also one of these around the lower city, but the lower city also has a city wall around it. But just this rampart, this is made out of earth, but not just earth, Mud bricks, adobe. It's constructed of adobe bricks. In fact, to construct the upper city rampart and the lower city def- uh, defensive rampart, took we estimate somewhere between 150 and 200 million mud bricks, individually made, individually laid. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of time and energy. It's a lot of work which is indicative of a vastly complex and wealthy society. So um, there you go. Now, here's the rampart system, just a little cross-section of it. And it's in this particular section where we're excavating, it's 33 meters thick, 100 feet thick, and uh, it's actually preserved up to about 40%. So it's pretty remarkable say, well, what happened to the other 60%? (laughs) What happened to the other 60% on top of that? The event. The event that destroyed the city. The shockwave was so powerful that it literally blew the city off its foundations. And so um, we'll look at that in a minute. But uh, here's here's the fortification. You can see the earlier city wall. If you want a date for this, Just call it the early Bronze Age or Genesis chapter 10. Sodom's mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And there's the city wall from that particular period. A new set of city walls and fortifications was constructed uh, during the, say, two, three hundred years before the time of Abraham. And that's the city that was destroyed eventually in the time of Abraham. And that's the city wall. That's an entrance into this massive tower. You can see the size of the diggers just for comparison to the size of the, of the fortifications. They're really quite stunning. Here I am standing uh, in this tower. The, the, the walls of this tower are 10 feet thick. Really quite incredible. Here it is from a different angle. As you can see, the city wall goes around the entire city. 
You can see it coming around. Here's the later city wall with the fortifications. There's one penetration through the city wall into the uh, one of the outer towers. There's another outer tower right there that you enter into, and that turned out to be the main gateway. That's two meters wide, about a little over six feet, and you can walk right into the city from there. It's what we discovered behind that this season. Now, this was done last season. This winter, just a few weeks ago, we excavated inside the city wall to look at the gatehouse. What does the entry building look like? When you go inside the city, what does it look like? I'll show you that in a minute. But there's also another story, important story, connected with that building that I want to show you. That's why I'm going to wait and do that in a little bit. Here's some of our folks, uh, myself and some of our diggers, uh, just doing what we do, digging. And my wife is sitting there saying, yeah, like you really get down and dig. I know, she, she gets me every time on it. I just pose for the picture with a trowel. and yeah. This is neat. Right, right where they're digging, right there, right in that area, we have this. Now, I want you to look at how close the surface is. The surface of the ground is just bare inches away from these fallen mud bricks. These bricks fell off the city gate when the city was destroyed by fire from the sky. And so here they are, fallen right where, this is right where they hit, jumbled in a pile. And uh, by the way, there should be, there should be hundreds and hundreds of tons of this stuff. But you just find a few bricks. What happened to the rest of it? Pulverized, turned into ash, blown away. All right. Now, um, this is my, Lane would call it, silly little reconstruction drawing of what the southern defenses look like. We have many towers, and you can see the gateway there to the right. Here's Lane and I standing in the city gate. Now, this is when we first discovered it, when we first excavated it. You can see we're only about this deep, but that foundation, the stone foundation is showing up. By the way, I don't have a, a close-up here, but what we discovered uh, last season and this season is that some of the stones of the foundations are heat-fractured. A stone foundation, a foundation stone that's sitting under 20, 30, 40 feet of mud brick superstructure, how does that get heat fractured? It's got to be, that's a violent event, to say the least. Now, here's Lane and I standing. Now, I'm standing in the, to the left there, I'm standing in the, chamber of the tower, the left gate tower. Lane is standing in the, in the gate proper. Now, what I've done here in this little reconstruction is to take the gateway up from the actual foundation. So this is actually to scale, just to show you the size of the gateway of Sodom from Genesis 19. There it is. This is to scale. You see Lane and I standing there, just little guys, and you can see the magnitude of the city gate. Now, uh, let me show you Lane's version of it. This is Lane's version of the city gate. You can see the man standing in the gateway, which was probably an arched gateway made of mud bricks. So it's very, very uh, powerful and strong. Dr. Ritmar, of course, is always examining things and... Uh, he comes out like for 10 days at the end of the season. We're there for weeks and weeks. He comes out in 10 days and draws everything. Not only that, he sees things we never saw. And he points things out and goes, oh, this, you know, uh, this is the part of the gate system. This connects with that. And we're going, oh, okay. And then he comes up with these amazing drawings. Now, um, I want to talk about an event. So let's look at a house. You might, people have asked us, have you found Lot's house? How would you? With probably hundreds of houses, how would you decide which one was Lot's house? However, the Bible does tell us quite a bit about this house, and it comes away. Look at this. They entered Lot's house as the angels. Remember when the angels came, he prepared a meal for them. Men from every part of the city of Sodom surrounded the house. These are the kind of clues you follow. If you can surround the house, what does that tell you about the house? It's freestanding. 
freestanding. It's not a piece of a larger structure. So they can get around the entire perimeter. So um, if you look at it, here, here are houses. In fact, these are right to the left of the gate. You go in the gate, turn left, and, and you come to this first palatial house. Um, it has its own courtyard. In fact, if you look right here, here's the courtyard. This is not a wall. This is a, an excavation bulk. But this is a wall, and you see the different rooms. In fact, right over here is the exterior patio kitchen. So there's actually a cooking plaza or open area outside the house for uh, preparing the meals. And so this kind of house, you can actually walk around the entire perimeter of it. So many of the houses in the city are actually freestanding. Now, this is a remarkable picture. If you look at it carefully, of course, you can see some walls. But what you can also see right there, to the right, you see a foundation. This is a stone foundation. But do you see this? This is a wall. What happened to the wall? fell over. Look what it's laying on. It's laying on solid black ash. So there was a huge burning, and this particular wall just collapsed right over on top of the burn. And so here's a little bit tighter look at it. This is the terminal event. This is a Middle Bronze Age foundation from the time of Abraham. This is a wall right here that fell down sideways to the west, and you can see that it's lying on black ash. So this is tremendous destruction, and this is just a little piece of the excavation. In fact, it's the kitchen of, uh, of this house that we, we looked at. Here's a reconstruction drawing of it, and this is the kind of thing that we do for publication. Uh, here's Vic, uh, one of our... A supervisor's holding a, a Middle Bronze Age bowl from the time of Abraham from the destruction layer. Dr. John Leslie, who I also believe is here tonight, uh, holding a pot that he found over in the, uh, just on the surface actually, in, 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 an, in a field that was plowed up. This is a Middle Bronze Age pot from the destruction um, that he found there. What's interesting, when they plow the fields there, they're plowing up the ash of Sodom's destruction and planting in it. And uh, it grows good bananas, by the way. This is a seal for rouletting designs onto probably ceremonial bread, like make a flat bread like a tortilla and roulette this across it, and it makes a design. And when you throw it on the griddle or you bake it, it uh, the de- design uh, comes out very nicely. And they probably use this for, for ritual purposes. Now, of course, we can talk about buildings. We found buildings and temples. This is all in the book. Temples. The palace of King Bera. We think we have the palace as well. That's a pretty remarkable palace. We call it the red palace because it's made of, red, it's made of mud bricks, but the mud bricks are turned red. How do they get red? They're just mud bricks. Fire. <laughs> Heat turns them red. So a remarkable place. Um, we can talk about all those things, but you know what people are really interested in? Destruction. That's just the way we are, isn't it? We want to know about the destruction. How bad was it? How ugly did it get? Well, it got pretty ugly. Let's look at it. The Bible says, Yahweh rained down a conflagration. And lightning, now we translate lightning instead of sulfur because gofrit could mean sulfur, but when it comes out of the sky, it's really talking about lightning. So he rained a great fire and lightning on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. He overthrew those cities, the entire kikar, the entire circle, that's what it means, including those living in the cities and also all the vegetation of the land. The whole place was toasted. In fact, we now know the, the footprint of that, the entire circle of the Jordan above the, the Dead Sea, about, about 20 miles in diameter, 
from Jericho on one side to Tal Hamam Sodom on the other, all of that area in a big circle was destroyed. And, of course, nobody lived there for a very, very long time afterward. The destruction was either so, so, so horribly destructive or scary. It, was, it just frightened everyone in the area to death, so much so they wouldn't move back in for at least seven centuries. So here we have this massive destruction. This is a meter of black ash and destruction debris. Now, this is on the upper tell. We have to dig through an Iron Age town from the time of King uh, Solomon and afterward to get down to it. But on the upper tell, we can actually get down to this this um, massive ash and destruction deposit. In that, we find some mud bricks that are fired so hard, they ring like pottery when you hit them with a trowel. So it's very, very... Uh, hot stuff. We also find roofing material like this wattle and daub, which is fired like pottery. Now this is just mud. This is just mud. How does mud survive with all the... You can actually see the little lines of the impressions of the reeds or the sticks in it. That's that's how well it's fired and preserved. Um, Really quite amazing. But one of the most amazing things was that down in the Middle Bronze Age destruction layer, here at the, at the bottom of this trench, we found this. Now, I've shown this before to you, but I bring it up again just for your interest because it is the analysis of this thing is actually in the book and some pictures from the electron uh, uh, microprobe that was done, a glorified electron microscope, and showing you the internal structure of, of this thing. But what we found is, this is a Middle Bronze Age storage jar, and on the outside of it, we find that it's melted into glass. Now, this is interesting because um, we have some features here. See this blackened stuff? This is carbon. Carbon doesn't melt. The rest of it's silica. It's from the kaolin. Kaolin's clay. It's just the silica composition of the, of the clay itself melting into glass. But when it melts, uh, the carbon just sort of separates out of it. And so does the calcium. You see the little nodules of calcium separation in it. So it's very interesting that you have this. Now, how hot does it have to be to produce this? You can see all of these pieces, the big one, a couple of smaller pieces. In all of these pieces, we have exactly the same thing happening, identical physical properties. What's interesting about this is that that's a Middle Bronze Age pottery shirt from nine feet down in an excavation at Tal Hammam. The material on the right is trinitite from ground zero of the explosion of the first atomic bomb. How hot was the material of that pottery at Tal Hammam? At least that of a nuclear explosion. Okay? Now, don't run out of here saying that Dr. Collins said that God toasted Sodom with a nuclear bomb. It's not what happened. Something else altogether. Read the book. (laughs) But um, the fact is that the temperature range is similar to that. It's very interesting stuff. So is this. This is impact glass. It is desert glass. By the way, both of these artifacts are sitting on the table over in the bookstore. There's a whole range of artifacts there from the destruction layer of Sodom. This would be the only time you get to see this. If you buy a book, I'll show it to you. Just kidding. (laughs) No, it's there for you to look at. But it may be the last time you ever get to see it because these artifacts belong to the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. And they will return to the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan in due time. So they're here, they're visible, and uh, not touchable, but visible. And uh, Phil, one of my uh, staff members, uh, is over there and is going to take care of talking about that.
but you can actually see this. This is desert glass. This is silica sand, maybe banked up against a building or just in the open, melted into glass by the same event that melted the pottery over at Sodom. This is found four kilometers to the south. Here at Sodom, in the ash matrix, we have human bone scatter, almost as if bodies were heated to great temperature and exploded. You find bits and pieces everywhere through some of the ash layer. So the destruction was not just of walls and houses, gates, but of people as well. And people who played games. This is a game board. People who had toys, children who had toys. This is a wheel off a toy wagon. This is a bead from someone's jewelry. Bronze, bracelets, and other items of jewelry. Scarabs, personal seals, indicating ownership. In the gate area, we excavated several probes, and in those probes we found prodigious amounts of black ash, about, a, about 18 inches worth, with the consistency and weight of wheat flour. You know what a sack of wheat flour feels like. This is the consistency of this ash. It's dark and it's, it's foreboding. It really gives you a sense that something happened and the ash fell back to the sky uh, after this, the, the shock wave and, and the heat of the destruction to leave this amazing layer of ash around the city. It's pretty powerful stuff. Now, just a couple of questions. This is a fact. As a result of our excavations, we have determined that Bronze Age civilization on the eastern Jordan disk with Tal Hamam as the center, the epicenter of this culture, flourished continuously for over 2,500 years. It's a long time. How long has the United States been around? Continuously for over 2,500 years as the dominant city in the region. Another fact, this Bronze Age civilization including Sodom, came to an abrupt termination toward the end of the Middle Bronze Age. It's the time of Abraham. And that area remained unoccupied for at least the next five centuries. Nobody, this is the best watered agricultural land in the region. There are seven springs at Tal Hamam. There was two perennial rivers running around it. Not to even mention the Jordan River that ran right through the middle of the disk of the Kikar. It was well watered. It's the best watered agricultural land in the region. Yet, yet, for at least five centuries, now we know probably around seven centuries, nobody came back there to build anything. It was a crossroads. Nobody built there. It was well watered. Still nobody built there. It was right in the center of what we call the Holy Land, yet nobody built there. Why? The destruction must have been so horrific. Here's the critical question to ask in the light of those two facts. Why did the best watered agricultural land in the region remain without cities and towns for the next five to seven centuries following its destruction in the time of Abraham? Something happened here that is so unusual, so horrific and so traumatic that people stayed out for centuries, centuries, and centuries. I'm not going to answer the question for you. I would just say, read the book. No, not, not my book. Read the Bible. That'll give you the story. Now, um, so Tal Hamam, as we always say, is exactly in the right place. It's exactly in the right time frame. It's exactly possessing all the right stuff. It has everything that you need. So proving that this is biblical Sodom has really been, uh, I want to say it's been easy, but it's been an exciting and very powerful thing to demonstrate the historical accuracy of the biblical text. Now I want to launch into something else. I've never talked about this before, 
uh, in public until just the last few days because we're, we're still working on the research, but I want to share it with you because the more we work on it, and this is a lot of this is being done by Kathleen Rittmeyer, Dr. Lane Rittmeyer's wife, who's an archaeologist in her own right and is an excellent researcher, and she's the one that began to see these things and put us onto it, and the more we see of it, uh, it's breathtaking, it's stunning, it's shocking, it's shocking. I can't show you everything. I can't even show you some of the artifacts from Sodom. Not, not in a mixed audience. Um, but I'm going to try as delicately as I can to share with you the background of the story of the attempted abduction of the angels who came to the city of Sodom. That's a story that biblical commentators have not been able to explain. They've tried to explain it. It, it just doesn't wash. It doesn't seem to fit a cultural pattern uh, of the Near East of the area of Canaan, it just seems to be sort of off the charts, something aberrant, something sort of uh, that you can't connect with with human activity anywhere in this region. And in fact, uh, it probably can't be connected. But I'm going to show you a connection. Now, what I call call this is the Minoan connection. Now, where is that? Where, where is uh, the Minoan civilization? The Minoan civilization is in Crete. This is during the Bronze Age. This is during the patriarchal period, during the time of Abraham. The 19th, 18th, 17th centuries B.C. The Mycenae, the great city of Mycenae up on the Greek mainland, is part of this cultural sphere as well, as are the Cretes, uh, on uh, the Minoans on the island of Crete. And then you see Sodom over near the Dead Sea. Now, we have to explain then that all of these things are connected. How are they connected? Something happened to bring the Mycenaean and Minoan cultures over not only to the coast, just the coast, not Canaan proper, just some of the cities on the coast, and jumping all the way over to the Jordan Valley to the cities of the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, let's read the Bible here. Here's what the text says. The angels, of course, had come to town to talk to Lot about leaving the city. They were going to warn him of the impending doom. So they came to his house. By the way, they were going to spend the night in the plaza of that gate. The plaza would have been right inside the gate that we, that we saw. The angel said, we're going to spend the night in the plaza. Lot warned them. He said, uh-uh. You're going to come to my house and be under my protection because you're not going to spend the night in the open. There was a reason for that. So, they go to his house, and here's what happened. So before they laid down to go to sleep, the men of the city, that is the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, representing all the people from every quarter of the city. And they called to Lot, and they said to Lot, Where are the men? who came to you tonight, bring them out so that we might have sexual relations with them. It's Genesis 19. By the way, a lot of people connect that fact to the destruction of Sodom. But if you read the story, Sodom was already targeted for destruction before we ever find out anything about that. Okay. I'm sure it had something to do with it, but it wasn't just that. Now, what I want to show you is some stunning archaeological evidence of a direct connection between Sodom and what is called the, and this is the scholarly terminology for this, and the institutional piderastia of the 18th to 16th century B.C. Minoan culture of Greece, 
or Crete, which eventually migrated to Greece and which is contemporaneous with the city of Sodom. There is a connection. The connection this season started to emerge just like this. We're inside the gate, and the gatehouse from the time of Abraham and Lot is beginning to emerge from the soil. You can see it right here. You can see a wall here and here, and another piece of it here. It's just starting to come out of the soil. And eventually, even though some of it literally has been blown away, not only has the top, has the superstructure been blown away, the foundations have been blown away. Or maybe robbed out by later people who came along and stole the stones to build their own houses. But you can see here something interesting happening. Look at some of our excavators standing on top of column bases. They're standing on top of pillar bases. Now, what's so unusual about pillar bases? Here's Dr. Rittmeyer's drawing of one. Now, there's several phases of pillared buildings in that area. One of them is the pillared gatehouse. This is the final gatehouse at the time of the destruction of Sodom. Look at it. You come in and you hang a right and go out the right side. Now, notice that it's made, the roof is upheld by columns. So you have a building a gatehouse with columns, and then four of those columns are so equally spaced that we believe it functions as a light well okay, to allow light to come in through the roof. So you don't roof that part of it. You leave that open. Now, what's interesting is this pillared building construction is not Canaanite. It does not belong to the Canaanite culture. This kind of architecture is Minoan-style architecture, and it is completely unknown in Bronze Age Canaan. Then there's... So we have an architectural connection to the Minoan world. We also have artistic connections to the Minoan world. This is a piece of pottery. This is a bull. It's the head of a bull. By the way, the bull is on the table. What's interesting about this bull? You notice the direction of the horns are where? Down. Egyptian horns go up. Canaanite depictions of bull horns go up. Mesopotamian depiction of bull horns go up. Guess who has the only architectural depictions of bulls whose horns go down? The Minoans, the Mycenaeans. Well, let's look at Minoan art. Here's our bull. I kind of separated him out, get him in the right orientation. There's the Minoan bull from one of their pieces of pottery from the time of Abraham. See the significance? So these artistic motifs are unknown in Bronze Age Canaan. They cannot be found anywhere. There's nothing like it. You have to jump all the way to Crete to find this artistic motif. Now, we have architectural and artistic connection to the Minoan world. There are some other ones that are very interesting in light of this. In fact, some artifacts we excavated several years ago that now make sense in the light of this. Didn't make sense then, now make great sense. But let me summarize it for you. Strabo, the Greek explorer scholar of the first century A.D., and modern scholars, many, many of them, document the institutional pederastia that formed the social structure of Minoan society during the Bronze Age. Just to be delicate about it, what is that? That's man-boy love. Pederastia was not an aberration in Minoan culture. It was, in fact, the fundamental societal structure, and it was a requirement of adolescent male upbringing. 
Every single male in Minoan society grew up from 12 years old onward in a relationship, in a homosexual relationship with an older mentor, usually older by 10 years. Now let's talk about it. In Minoan culture, male relations with women who often lived in separate houses or villages was reserved for producing children. That was it. A male child was raised by his mother until age 12 when he was then given over to a 22-year-old male called an Erastes, or lover, in a formal, intimate relationship for eight years. After which period, the process repeated itself. In other words, the now 32-year-old male was thus eligible then to take a wife, while the now 22-year-old was 12, now 22, who's then called an Ephebe, a graduate of this process, took his own 12-year-old beloved, or an Eramanos, to start the process all over again, generation after generation after generation. This was the fundamental arrangement of Minoan society. Shocking. Cretan pederasty exhibited a unique feature. Now, other people had this. The Aegean region was sort of notorious for this. And even those great Spartans, the Spart- remember the Spartan warriors? They adopted this model of society. Okay. But the Cretans were noted for a unique thing. And the unique thing was a form of ritual kidnapping. Now, the ritual kidnapping happened this way. And this was done by aristocrats, leaders of the city. So it might be the king or his brother or a priest or someone at the temple. Could be These are the wealthy people. They would see someone that they wanted, a young male, and they would send out a gang of their friends called ritual abductors to kidnap the desired Eramanos, a beloved young man, okay, to kidnap him. By the way, they would ask permission from the parents or the guardian so they would know ahead of time that the gang was coming in order to conduct the ritual kidnapping. This is the culture. Then it would be con- considered a cultural slap in the face to the Erastes or the person who sent the gang to make the kidnapping if this accepted and honored cultural practice was refused. In other words, if the parents or the guardian said no, this would be like a cultural disaster, a slap in the face to the person who reached out in this fashion. Are you starting to see the picture? The conduct of Minoan-style pederastic society of Sodom, it was in Sodom, would have been abhorrent even to the indigenous Canaanites who themselves practiced child sacrifice alongside male and female ritual prostitution, which even the Israelites, by the way, adopted for much of their history. But they would have been horrified by this Minoan practice, which was resident in the city of Sodom. Indeed, the if you go back and read the text of Genesis 19, there was a vast Remember, outcry against the city of Sodom. By who? The Sodomites themselves? No. By the people of the cultures around them. There was a horrible outcry. The, uh, the outcry against Sodom was great. Here's what I think. Knowing the eventual penchant of the Israelites themselves to go what the Bible calls whoring after the religious and cultural practices of the of Canaan's inhabitants. God decided he could deal with the, they could deal with the Canaanites. Joshua could deal with the Canaanites, but not this. God, I think, decided to excise 
this Minoan cultural influence, this cancer from the land that he was giving to Abraham's descendants. He wanted it cut out. And he cut it out in a pretty dramatic way. Now, if I want you to go back now, tonight, tomorrow, sometime, and read that story. Read that story again. Because the men of the city of Sodom, what did they do? It was probably multiple gangs of ritual kidnappers who came to his door knocking. They didn't break the door down. They asked permission. Where are these lads that came into you? Send them out to us so that we might have our way with them. Lot says, "Uh, that's not going to happen. Close the door. They got upset. Why? They had been slapped in the face. This was a cultural offense to refuse this activity. And so they got upset. They got angry. Then they started to try to force their way in. And, of course, the angels took care of business, blinded them so they couldn't finish their deeds. So this is what's happening. Now, the Sodom narrative carefully marks out a location for the cities of the plain north of the Dead Sea on the east side of the Jordan River where, in fact, our excavations have shown and continue to show that the ruins of significant Bronze Age cities exist exhibiting all the cultural influences described in the book of Genesis. Such a high degree of correspondence between text and ground cannot be a mere coincidence. If in the past archaeologists and Bible scholars had taken the Sodom tales seriously, which many of them did not, they would have discovered the civilization in the land of the Kikar a long time ago and would have confirmed the historical accuracy, pinpoint accuracy of the biblical text and the story of Sodom. But they didn't take the Bible seriously, and therefore they not only did they not find the city, but they forever left this gaping cultural uh, backdrop out of the picture. There's no way they could understand the story. So they said it was a myth. It was a legend. In fact, it does exist, and in a big way. They didn't take the Bible seriously, and they didn't find the city. We took it seriously, and we did. The Bible and the trial work remarkably well together, as I always say. Take the Bible seriously. And I'll say this, just one last little thing. Sodom rocked along for 2,500 years. And God, for His purposes, decided to eliminate it. Because it had reached the end of any possible redemption. And Abram himself argued with God for days. Lord, if there's 50 men, will you destroy it? No. Lord, if there's just 40 men, will you destroy it? No. Lord, if there's just 10, will you destroy it? No. If you can find 10 men in this city, young or old, who have not given themselves over to this Minoan cultural influence, I'll save the city. And he couldn't find 10. And he couldn't even include his future sons-in-law who refused to leave the city because they themselves had been sucked in, bought into this cultural process. And God said, it's over. It's over. Men and women, God demonstrates, and the archaeological record and the science proves, that when God says He's going to judge, when God sets His mind to judge, the judgment falls, and it falls in a catastrophic way. Western civilization is flirting with disaster. We are flirting with disaster. And when God decides that the future of this world can well do without the negatives growing up in our culture, 
so much so that it becomes irredeemable. He will judge. He will judge. So let's take it seriously. Young people, better take the Bible seriously. Don't think you can just live your life, do whatever you want. Don't think we can get away with living life as we want it to be in our own eyes. God creates. God creates us. He says, you will do this and you won't do this. And he does this for our benefit, for our joy and our completion. And if we violate it, then disaster always reigns. Whether it's just in in a personal life or the culture as a whole. So, pray for for the redemption of Western civilization. Pray that the gospel goes far and wide. Pray that people respond. Because judgment can come as quickly as it came for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank you for your time. We appreciate you. God bless you.